Father, we give thanks that we can open up your word today. We give thanks that your word uh, cuts into our hearts. We pray this morning, Father, that you will help us to take our mind off the distractions and things of this week and of this world. Uh, help us to focus on you. Pray that, Father, your Holy Spirit may speak to us through your word and through your sermon, and that, Father, we will come to know uh, more about your great love and your great hope and your great peace. In your name we pray. Um, Chris is now going to come and bring to us our Bible reading, and then Duncan will bring us our sermon. Now, the Lord had said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here, and when he does, he will drive you out completely. Tell the people that men and women alike are to ask their neighbors for articles of silver and gold. The Lord made the Egyptians favorably disposed towards the people, and Moses himself was highly regarded in Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and by the people. So, Moses said, This is what the Lord says. About midnight I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die. From the firstborn son of Pharaoh, who sits on the throne, to the firstborn son of the female slave, who is at her handmill, and the, all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or ever will be again. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any person or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. All these officials of yours will come to me, bowing down before me and saying, Go, you and all the people who follow you. After that, I will leave. Then Moses, hot with anger, left Pharaoh. The Lord had said to Moses, Pharaoh will refuse to listen to you, so that my wonders may be multiplied in Egypt. Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let the Israelites go out of his country. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne, to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon, and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night, and there was loud wailing in Egypt for there was not a house without someone dead. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Up, 
Leave my people, you and the Israelites. Go, worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks and herds as you have said and go and also bless me. The Egyptians urged the people to hurry and leave the country. For otherwise, they said, we will all die. So the people took their dough before the yeast was added and carried it on their shoulders in kneading troughs wrapped in clothing. The Israelites did as Moses instructed and asked the Egyptians for articles of silver and gold and for clothing. The Lord made the Egyptians favorably disposed towards the people and they gave them what they asked for. So they plundered the Egyptians. The Israelites journeyed from Ramesses to Sukkoth. There were about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. Many other people went up with them, and also large droves of livestock, both flocks and herds. With the dough the Israelites had brought from Egypt, they baked loaves of unleavened bread. The dough was without yeast because they had been driven out of Egypt and did not have time to prepare food for themselves. Now, the length of time the Israelite people lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, to the very day, all the Lord's division left Egypt. Because the Lord kept vigil that night to bring them out of Egypt, on this night, all the Israelites are to keep vigil to honor the Lord for the generations to come. I wanted to share with you uh, just a, a really wonderful thing that happened that I was uh, privileged to be a part of during the week. Um, uh, so, um, and lovely that uh, the Wheezies are here today. Uh, Trevor and Lynn, who many of us will know, um, uh, they're, um, uh, they're, I've been meeting up with their son-in-law, Sam, for a little while, just um, sharing the gospel with him and uh, reading the Bible and praying for him. And so lovely to have Sarah with us and Trevor and Lynn. Uh, and uh, uh, Sam has recently put his faith in Jesus. Sam is, um, has uh, advanced motor neuron disease, so uh, I think that's correct, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So um, he, uh, he's unable to sort of speak, but he uses a computer to, to speak. Uh, and it was just a really beautiful uh, moment and a privilege to be able to do that. I said I would share that with, with you. We, we, we actually baptised Sam during the week. So on Thursday, a uh, little service in his home, we baptised Sam. So yeah, you can clap for that. That's <laughs> wonderful, isn't it? Um, uh, and, uh, and one of the things that we always say when, when, when we baptise people is that this is actually inclusion into our family, um, what's going on here. Uh, so even though Sam's unable to be with us in person, please do pray for him as a new brother in Christ um, and pray that God will strengthen and guard him and grow him in Christ. So please do do that as, as, a church, his, as his church family now. Um, uh, that would be wonderful. All right, let me pray and then we'll look at God's word together. Give us grace, O Lord, not only to hear your word with our ears, but also to receive it into our hearts and to show it forth in our lives. 
for the glory of your great name. Amen. Amen. Okay, well, some days are burned into our memories, aren't they? Some days sort of are just burned into the memory. Uh, so if I say 25th of April, you know straight away what I'm talking about. Anzac Day, thank you. September 11, everyone will know the anniversary of the Twin Towers. 26th of January, Australia Day, 4th of July, Independence. So there's all these dates that are kind of etched into our minds. 8th of December... My wedding anniversary, thank you. <laughs> well done. <laughs> that was good. Uh, uh, so there, there are these days where we remember important things in our history, right? Uh, things that have shaped and changed everything since. Uh, for an ancient Israelite, and actually for the Jewish people today, you mention the 15th day of the month, month Nisan, and they, they automatically, springs to their mind, they know, that's the day... When, a might, when with a mighty hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. That's the Passover, what we just have been uh, thinking about in our home groups and had read for us. That was the one day above all others that defined their whole existence. Um, the one day above all others. It was the founding moment of their nation. Nothing was ever going to be the same again. Uh, actually, their whole calendar was arranged around it. We didn't read this, but if you've got your Bibles there, you can look at chapter 12, uh, just the start of chapter 12, in Exodus uh, 12, verse 2. God says to Mo Moses that this month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. So it's like, this is like the, the beginning of their life as a nation. They were to remember it, remember it, remember it, and never forget it. Well, we're going to look at this day today. But before we get there, it's helpful to rewind a little uh, and to give, you, uh, give us all a bit of an um, update about where we're up to in this book, Exodus. It's a book all about the wonderful faithfulness of God, uh, the faithfulness of God to his promises, who had this plan for rescuing and healing the whole world, who made incredible promises to Abraham and who was faithful to his promises. If you remember that from chapter 1, uh, where this, there's this kind of explosion of life and blessing on Abraham's descendants. We got a glimpse of that, actually, didn't we, as we read through, of just the, the number of people that were brought out of Egypt, this explosion of life. Um, we had a glimpse of that. Um, not only is he the faithful God, though, we, we looked last week uh, at how he is also the God of holy fire, Yahweh. The one who is who he is, who will be who he will be. Um, and all through these first chapters of Exodus, there's this conflict brewing over and against this God of faithfulness and fire stands the king of Egypt, Pharaoh. Uh, and there's, it's kind of like this prize match that we're getting ready for uh, between Yahweh and Pharaoh, all through these chapters, where Yahweh is the Lord of life and blessing for his people, Pharaoh is the bringer of death and curse. Uh, you remember this from the previous few weeks. Uh, Pharaoh's embarked on this basically genocide against God's people, he rally, and he rallies his whole people, actually, the whole nation of Egypt, is rallied in this genocide to put to death every baby boy of the Hebrews. Uh, we saw this last week. Yahweh calls Moses to lead his people out of Egypt. Eventually, Moses does that. He goes to, he calls Pharaoh to let God's people go. So there's this showdown kind of brewing. Who's going to win? Yahweh. 
the holy, faithful Lord of the universe, or Pharaoh, the one who holds these people in a vicious and terrible grip. Uh, you would have seen this in home groups. Uh, we're kind of we're taking a, a lot of the a, a big swathe of Exodus today, uh, but hopefully you've had a chance to read through this yourself or look at it in, in your home groups. From chapter seven onwards, it's like these series of, of confrontations as Moses brings God's word to Pharaoh. Each time Pharaoh's heart is hardened, he refuses to let God's people go, and each time God. Uh, brings a mighty work of judgment on Pharaoh and his people. So there's been nine plagues so far. Uh, The river turns to blood. Frogs and gnats and flies fill the land. Livestock die. Boils come. Hail and locusts devastate the land. And last of all, darkness descends. Darkness covers Egypt for three days. God is the God of life and lights. And all through, see what he's doing in these plagues. All through these plagues, he's showing Pharaoh what life is like without him. You want to oppose me and my purposes, says God? Well, here is a taste of what life is like without me, without my sustaining hand, disorder, decay, darkness. But again and again, over and over again, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to listen to God. He refuses to let his people go. And so God brings one more plague, one more final judgment on Egypt. Uh, This time it's different, though. He himself would come. So 11 verse 4, this is what the Lord says. About midnight, I will go throughout Egypt. God is going to come and pass through this land. And what's, what happens when God passes through? Well, Pharaoh had wanted to enslave and kill God's firstborn son, Israel. That's how God talked about his people back in chapter 4, my firstborn. And now the judgment God has been bringing on Pharaoh in Egypt comes to its climax in this this terrifying plague of the firstborn. Uh, Chapter 11, verse 5. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die, from the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the female slave who is at her handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there ever has been or ever will be again. It's a really chilling scene, isn't it? It's kind of haunting, actually, I think. It's a sobering reminder that God, God judges. God judges that to set yourself up against God is a dead end, literally. To reject and oppose the giver of life means that you are under the sentence of death. It's not a very popular kind of thing to talk about, a thing to believe. Maybe you find this hard. Um, you don't like this idea of the judgment of God. I want to suggest in the big picture of God's, of God's word, of the Bible, that actually all of us deep down long for the judgment of God. A world without God's judgment is a world where evil wins, where the pharaohs of this world are not brought to account for their death and violence, where sickness and brokenness are ultimately victorious, 
A world without the judgment of God is a world without hope. But the great problem is, the great problem that's all through this, this book, all through the whole kind of story of Scripture, actually, the great problem is, how can God judge the evil of this world without also wiping out the people who cause that evil? How can any of us come under the judgment of Yahweh, this God of holy fire, and survive? God has to judge a sinful world because he is just. But when he passes through in judgment, who can stand? Who can stand? No one. <laughs> and yet, and yet, there are people here who do survive, right? Who do come through this judgment. Uh, 11 verse 7, But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any person or animal, a sign of kind of peace, that there hasn't been this tragedy among them, then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. See what's going on here. God is not only the God of holy fire, he is also the God of faithfulness to his promise. The family of Abraham, through whom he would bring about his great salvation plan for the whole world, would be protected. How is that possible? It wasn't because they were really good. It wasn't because they were without sin. Far from it. In themselves, the people of Israel had no more hope of facing the judgment of God than the people of Egypt did. So you see what's, what's, what this tension is? How can this happen? How can God be both the God of holy fire and the God of faithfulness? Hold that thought. Because there's something else that we need to see here. When God passes through, he brings judgment, he brings distinction, but also glory. He brings glory. Later in chapter 12, verse 12, we find out that his judgment is not just on Pharaoh and the people of Egypt, but also on the gods of Egypt. On the gods of Egypt. Um, he is judging the idols of the world. At, at the heart of our own sin, it actually, this actually gets to the heart of our own sin, really, the heart of our own sin is putting other things in God's place. That's what the Bible calls idolatry. We worship created things rather than the creator. But our idols, the tragedy of it is our idols don't give life. They only enslave. Um, back in chapter 9, God had said this to Pharaoh, but I have raised you up for this very purpose that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So Pharaoh thought he was in control, but God shows them that it is not, that Yahweh, God, is the sovereign Lord who uses even the rebellion of Pharaoh for his own good purposes so that the world would know him as the only true and living God. See what he's doing when God passes through He's, he brings judgment and, he, and distinction, but he's displaying his glory to the world. So back to that question then. How can God be both holy and gracious? How can he come in judgment and distinction and salvation? Uh, this is at the heart of the Exodus, friends, at the heart of the whole Bible, at the heart of our life together, at the heart of the good news of Jesus, at the heart of all God's gracious plans. What is this distinction? 
Well, it's not guilty versus innocent. The people of Israel, they were sinners just like everyone else. They had, they had no hope in the presence of the holy God. What is this distinction? Well, the answer is it's a distinction that comes through substitution. Substitution. When God passes through in judgment, no one can stand and blood is shed. Uh, did you notice, notice this is actually a really important thing? Do you notice by the end of the night, death has come to every home in Egypt? Every home, regardless, because the Lord has passed through. Either the death of the firstborn son or the death of the lamb. God in his grace provides a way of escape from his judgment. He provides a lamb. And when God passed through Egypt, he passed over every house that had the blood of the lamb smeared over its doorway. The lamb, see what's going on? That's a substitution. The lamb died in their place to cover them so that they could live, so that they could be free. Yahweh passed over his people in judgment through the substitutionary sacrifice of the lamb so that he could lead them out of slavery. He could free them from their oppression and bring them to their true home with him. This is really the, this is the wonder. You know, that, that tension we're talking about, how can God be holy, the God of fire and the God of faithfulness? How can he be the God of holiness and mercy? Here is the wonder of these things combined. I want to read a quote. Uh, some of you might know um, uh, a, a pastor and author, Tim Keller, who passed away yesterday, actually. I was really sad to hear. It had a big impact on many people. He passed away after a uh, struggle with cancer. So I thought I wanted to use um, one of, a quote from Tim Keller, which sort of captures this, I think, really beautifully. Uh, Only a grasp of what Jesus did on the cross... This is jumping forward a little bit. We'll get there. But only a grasp of what Jesus did on the cross, the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. That's what's going on here with this lamb. Substitutionary atonement, a substitution that makes you right. Only a grasp of that can prevent spiritual distortions. Only this doctrine keeps us from thinking that God is mainly holy with some love or mainly loving with some holiness. See how there's that, those two sort of things that we kind of tend to drift towards? But instead, he is both holy and loving, equally, interdependently. And then this beautiful line at the end, only this view of God makes the spoiled or the neglected into the healthy and the loved. So justice and mercy combine together, holiness and love. God freed his people through this substitutionary death of the lamb. And he freed them with a purpose, right? So that they could go and worship him. You see that again and again through these chapters, this call to go and worship, uh, to be freed so that they might go and worship. Back in chapter 9, God says to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews says, let my people go so that they may worship me. Now, I wonder what you think about that. <laughs> that whole idea of um, God desiring his own glory, his own worship, wanting people to worship him. I mean, it seems, it seems a bit off to us, right? A bit arrogant, maybe. And it would be 
if you said it. (laughs) It would be if I said it. It would be for us. For us to desire our own glory is like an overturning of things, putting ourselves where we can't be in God's place. But nothing is higher than God, and for him to desire his own glory is simply to put things in their right order so that he can bring life and fullness and peace to his world. It is good for you. It is good for the whole creation for God to be glorified and worshipped. He's the only one whose worship gives life and doesn't take it. All of our other idols take our life. He's the only one who we worship and gives us life, whose service is perfect freedom. He wants Israel to be freed, not just so that they can kind of then wander around aimlessly doing their own thing. He wants them to be freed so that they can worship him and so that through them, all the nations would come to know him and find life in him. And friends, that is exactly what happened in the fullness of time. When the seed of Abraham came, the one who is and who is God with us, the one who fulfills God's promises. See, this exodus that we're looking at, I mean, it's just an amazing story, right? An account, a historical account of this incredible thing that happened. It is incredible, but it's not just that, right? It's not just an amazing thing that happened in the past. As great as this salvation was, it was only ever a shadow of a far greater reality. It was only ever a signpost pointing towards a more wonderful salvation, a truer and deeper freedom. And so John the Baptist, when he sees Jesus in John 1, 29, cries out, Look, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Not just the sin of one people in one place, but the sin of the whole world. And this Lamb of God, this true spotless Lamb, well, he did something utterly shocking, actually. He did something incredible. Just before his own blood was shed on the cross, he led his disciples into a Passover meal. So um, we would have looked at this in home groups, and we kind of mentioned it as we read through the passage. Israel were to remember this through this meal every year, sort of taking it into themselves, working it into themselves, that this was their day to remember. This was their defining moment. Jesus leads his own disciples in this Passover meal. But as he, take, he does something shocking, it would have been utterly shocking, He takes the bread and he changes the script. Uh, What he should have said was, this is the bread of affliction which our fathers ate in the land of Egypt. Let everyone who hungers come and eat. Let everyone who is needy come and eat the Passover meal. That's what the person who was presiding over the Passover meal should have said at that point. What does the Lamb of God do? He says, take, eat. This is my body. This is my body. And he takes the, the cup, which would have been again familiar, and he says, this is the blood. This is my blood of the new covenant. It's shocking and wonderful. See what Jesus is saying? The great moment that defines the life of God's people is no longer the exodus out of slavery in Egypt, 
But the greater exodus out of slavery to sin and death that Jesus says that he is about to bring to fulfillment as his own blood is shed on the cross, the Lamb of God who takes away your sin and leads you home. So, friends, really the big question for us today is have you taken shelter under the blood of the Lamb? Have you? Have you? Have you taken shelter under his blood? Because God will pass through in judgment again. Not just on one land, but on the whole earth. He loves his world too much to let it continue forever in, in its disorder and its decay and its death. He will pass through again. But out of his incredible grace and mercy, he has provided a way for you on that day to be passed over. Because you are sheltered by the blood of the Lamb. So, friends, John the Baptist's call comes to you too. Look, behold, don't just kind of glimpse, gaze, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He longs to shelter all who call on him, all who come to him and ask him. So call on Jesus. Ask him for shelter today, for him to take away your sins, to forgive you and give you new life. He won't turn you away. And if you have done that, if you've come to Jesus and received his gift, his life in place of yours, then you have a new life. You have a new defining moment for your life. So many moments in our history, aren't there, that kind of shape us, that can, actually can control us and enslave us even. Here is a new defining, a day to remember that changes everything for you, the day above all days in your past. The cross of Christ is now your exodus moment that changes everything for you. And John's call actually continues. Look to him. Remember him. It's so easy to take our eyes off this, isn't it? Um, to think, to kind of receive Christ, but then to go about life thinking that ultimately, really, at the end of the day, my hope, my security, my feeling about how things are going in my life really at the end of the day, actually depends on me. Actually depends on how well I'm going, on maybe on my performance. Imagine a house in Egypt, a Hebrew house on that night. On that night. Um, just imagine a few people in this house. One of them in the house is a good moral person. He's pretty sure that God would accept him because of his own righteousness. But Moses urges him to kill the lamb and apply the blood, and they, they do that. They, they apply the blood to their door. Another person in the house is someone who's lived a life of a rebel, is an obvious sinner. Sitting next to them is someone with a deeply tender conscience who is really aware of their sin 
and he's terrified that the blood won't work. Now, which of them is saved? Which of them is saved? All of them, right? Their salvation is, has nothing to do with their own righteousness, not even with the strength of their own faith. Their salvation is utterly and entirely dependent, not on them, but on the blood of the Lamb slain in their place. Friends, it's the same for us. I want to give another great quote from Tim Keller. If you're falling off of a cliff, strong faith in a weak branch is fatally inferior to weak faith in a strong branch. Salvation is not finally based on the strength of your faith, but on the object of your faith. You see that? Your life is hidden with Christ. Your salvation is not dependent on yourself, but on his blood shed for you. We t- when we take our eyes off Jesus and turn them in on our own hearts, we become proud. Or maybe we become just despairing that we can't match up. So friends, let's, not, let's turn our eyes this day to behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world slain for you and turn the eyes of your heart every day to him, to him. The cross will give you, in place of pride, a joyful humility, in place of despair, a self-forgetful purpose. This, friends, is why, as a church, we are on about the cross. We love to, re- get, to gather and remember the cross of Christ, our exodus, Remember who we are now are because of this great salvation that he has won for us, his sacrifice in our place. One more quote to finish up, this time not by Tim Keller. An older writer from another age, Samuel Rutherford, says this about the cross. The cross is as wings are to a bird or sails to a ship to carry me forward to my harbour not forget our wings let's not roll up our sail let's cling to the cross let's pray our gracious God we know that before your holiness we deserve judgment none of us can stand when you pass through but we thank you for the amazing and wonderful gift that you've given us in Christ that through his blood shed in our place, the lamb slain before the foundation of the world, who is worthy to receive all glory because of him, we are sheltered, we are safe, we are made your people, we are given an eternal purpose to live for. So our God, we pray that you might do your great miraculous work today of please taking our eyes off ourselves and turning them to Jesus. Behold, the Lamb of God, who once and for all and wonderfully and utterly has taken away our sin. In his name we pray. Amen.